Ladies and gentlemen, my guest on the show today is best-selling business author John Warrillow. John's three books, Built to Sell, The Automatic Customer, and The Art of Selling Your Business, have over the years become something akin to sacred scrolls for the entrepreneur looking to build a business of true value, something that can thrive without them, something that one day they can sell for a pile of money. Now, John keynoted our Breakthrough Academy Winter Summit earlier this year, and he was kind enough to come back and do a podcast with us too. So today's conversation is about how you can avoid the frustrating situation many entrepreneurs find themselves in 20 years down the road with a company they love and have poured themselves into tirelessly, but that sadly isn't worth anything. So the highlights from this for me were how to lean into specialization and keep your service from becoming commoditized, why charging up front not only keeps your monthly cash flow healthier and less stressful, but also boosts the price a potential acquirer is willing to pay, and lastly, why giving away equity to long-term employees, while often done with the best of intentions, usually backfires when it comes time to sell your business. Full of brilliant insights and decades of experience, this conversation with John is a must listen. I hope you enjoy. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. John, it's good to see you and thank you so much for doing this. Uh, welcome to Contractor Evolution. Thanks, Benji. Good to be with you. Why do you think that so many business owners somewhat sadly... Uh, find themselves in a situation many years down the road, perhaps a few decades down the road, with a business that just really isn't worth that much? It's really about, is the business able to operate without the founder. A lot of founders, it's about they feel really good about themselves when they're solving customer problems, when they're fixing things for customers. And when they see the revenue going up and the profits going up, it just feels really good. Yet if the business is becoming more and more dependent on the owner personally, it's not worth anything to anybody else other than the owner. And really that's the essence of, is the business sellable? If you want to distill it down to its raw, you know, studs, so to speak, in a construction context, it's can your business succeed and thrive without you doing the work? And if you can, someone else will want to buy it. If you can't, no one else is going to want to buy it. You mentioned something a second ago. Um, it feels good to be the guy or to be the woman. Like there's a level of identity that gets built around um, being the rainmaker, being the results driver, being the problem solver, being the chief, the head honcho, whatever you want to call it. Do you find that in working with entrepreneurs, you need to sort of, co is there some coaching around the mindset that needs to shift where you need to like, 100%. like let go of that identity and be, be okay with not being that person anymore. And instead being this, this new role, this new sort of like business architect person, like talk a little bit about what you see around uh, the, the identity shift or the mindset shift that needs to happen there. Yeah, I would equate it to having kids. You know, when you're in your teenage years, your adolescence years, your early 20s, I mean, it's all, 
you know, it's, it's fun. It's achievement. It's, it's what, what, what excitement can I have today? And it's all very gratifying personally. And then you have kids and realize that somehow, some way your world has just changed dramatically. And now you've got to think about how you can shape these little human beings in your arms into 20 years later, self-sustaining people that can go off in the world and, and be happy. And so I think entrepreneurs in a funny way need to make the same shift as we make in, you know, when we have kids, if we're lucky enough to do so. And that is that the role of an entrepreneur, I believe is that of the parent of their company. In the early days, you do everything, right? You wipe their bum, you, you burp them. And in a business context, it means you, you, you collect the receivable, you pound the nails, uh, you get in the truck to talk to a difficult customer, you deal with a vendor. I mean, you do everything, right? Because that's what's required. But over time, the idea is similar to parenting. You've got to create the structure and process so that you personally aren't doing the work anymore. And again, that may come at the expense of your ego because it feels great to go solve a really technical challenge for a customer. Yet the moment you do that, you take one giant step backwards in the value of your company. What you've got to do is get the people under you to start rising up to do the work, to take on the challenging projects. And again, that's that's I, I like where you frame it, Benji, as, as a as a coaching and mindset shift because I think as entrepreneurs we are socialized to celebrate growth, mm. right? We, we celebrate. We we think it's wonderful when someone creates a seven figure business, and it's even better when they create an eight finger figure business because we have this sort of penchant to celebrate size. And, and I think that's a mistake. I think mm. that is really just our egos talking. It's this idea of revenue is vanity, right? You can tell who the most important person in a room is just when you ask how many employees do you have? Because the most important person in a room full of entrepreneurs is the one who employs the most people. And I think that's just wrong-headed. It's celebrating the wrong things. Growth in and of itself is not necessarily going to accrue much value to you as the founder, unless you can get your business running without you. And so I think the most important job we have as parents is to create happy, successful kids who can thrive independently without us. And I think the same is true of entrepreneurs. We, we have to create businesses that can thrive without us. And I think that's the, the ego uh, shift or the mindset shift that we need to make. I wanted to ask you about sort of timeframes here and I'll set this question up this way. I see two, uh, what I think would be like mistakes made when people are thinking about how long this takes and how much work it is to truly build a business of value. On one hand, there's, um, I'm not supposed to use language like this anymore, but like there's the old guy who's like really struggling and frustrated and has belief systems whirring away in his mind around nobody else can do this. Um, that's only a problem I can solve. Um, you know, blah, blah, blah. You've heard the stories a million times and they're, they're kind of sitting in this somewhat plateaued, perhaps decaying business that really isn't worth that much. And if they made decisions differently five years ago, 10 years ago, hell, even today, they could put themselves in a position where they have a business of value. So that's maybe one mistake. The other mistake is, let's say, young guy, and he has like read too much Tim Ferriss and thinks that he's going to... <laughs> And he'll say this. He'll be like, I'm just going to put systems in place and hire the right people. And like in three or four years, this thing's going to run itself and I'll be in Thailand. And it's so that 
you know, we see those people come through the program a lot. Sure. Obviously, as you can imagine, it's like, okay, like, you know, I love, I love the ambition, but like, well, you know, let's, let's reality test that for a few years and, and they get humbled and they learn how long it takes. And, 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 and ge actually generally speaking, folks like that actually do quite well. There's just, maybe they're uninformed at the beginning, but I'm being long winded. You, you sort of have like two mistakes that can be really made. One is like a belief systems thing. One is someone's just being somewhat naive. Broadly speaking, how long should a smart, competent entrepreneur be thinking about their exit in advance of it? Is there a number you can give us? I think five years is a good time frame. I think I just did a podcast on Built to Sell Radio with a guy named Mark Wright, and he went into business with a guy named Lord Sugar, who in the UK is kind of like the Richard Branson second uh, to the Richard Branson in terms of wealth and famous entrepreneur. He's a very, very famous guy. Lord His name's Sugar. Lord He's Sugar? Yeah, well, he's, you know, the Brits have a pension for all these sort of fancy oh, titles. Man. His name's Alan Sugar, actually, but he is actually a lord, and he's referred to as Lord Sugar. In any event, he told Mark, the guy I interviewed for the pot, he said, look, you know, you need to start a business from day one planning to sell it, even if you don't want to sell it. And plan for that period of time that you run the business for five years. And so to your point, I don't think this happens overnight, but I do think it's a mind shift, ideally from the beginning. But even for the the sort of legacy owner who may maybe, you know, hasn't structured things correctly, I think giving yourself a five-year window gives yourself enough time. And I think there's sort of three shifts you need to make. The first is in the like kind of level one entrepreneurship is, is doing the work and selling the work, right? Like imagine, uh, you know, you're a window cleaner and, and you go, you, you, you knock on doors. The, 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 the homeowner says, yes, come clean my windows next Tuesday. You show up with the truck and the ladders. And on next Tuesday, you go clean the windows. Okay. That's kind of level one entrepreneurship. And you can, you can, you can make a living doing, doing that. Level two is you do the selling. Someone else does the work. So you show up, knock on the door and say, great, love to clean your windows. Homeowner says, sure. How's next Tuesday? You say, no problem. I'll have a crew here to clean the windows. You don't clean the windows anymore, but you're still doing the selling. Level three is someone else is doing the selling and someone else is doing the window cleaning. That's where you've got someone who has the skills to do the work, but also the skills to do the selling. And the selling is the hardest part because for a lot of founders and owners, we sell naturally because we're subject matter experts, right? Uh, you know, if you if you build houses, you're the person who is the most established and experienced at building houses. If you do kitchens, you're probably the best person to install a kitchen on your crew. Yet you've you in, in many times you sell just through expertise. It's like in these challenger sale uh, kind of methodology. It's like that person who just sells because they're Incredible, right? You pluck some 25-year-old kid out of college, they're not going to have the same degree of credibility as you have just showing up with the gray hair. Therefore, you've got to teach them how to sell your formula, your process, your way of cleaning windows, installing kitchens, whatever it is that you do. But again, those are the three levels. Do and sell. Get the doing in someone else's hands, which frees you up to do more selling. And then once you've got enough revenue and profit, you can hire someone to do both the building, the doing, and the selling. And I think those are the sort of sequence of of, uh, of approach. Can you say more about why uh, removing the proverbial sales hat is the hardest? 
I, I know I know there's like okay the 25 year old's not gonna be able to sell a custom home build as well as the builder I get that but is there anything else that entrepreneurs really struggle with when they're trying to offload closing deals and making follow-up calls and generating revenue yeah I think it's because we haven't done the hard work of deciding what we want to be when we grow up what I mean by that is the best companies I'm thinking of BTA members like um, one day flooring as an example or uh, you know 505 junk or uh, any of the folks who have really decided to say, this is what we do at one day flooring. Lee was a contractor. I mean, you could get him to build your house, your kitchen, your garage. I mean, he knew it all, but he had the courage to say, no, what we're going to really focus on is flooring in particular, having a system, a process for getting floors done in one day. And, and, and that takes discipline. And most of us as entrepreneurs don't have that discipline, right? We want to be the heroes. We want to do the kitchen, the bathroom and the garage because it makes us feel good. It satiates our ego. But Lee had the courage to say, no, all we're going to do is flooring. Why? Because I can hire a crew to install the floors and teach them the basics of installing a floor. It would take me decades to install, to teach a crew how to do all of the things that I know how to do, but it, it could take months to do the latter. Secondly, he created a formula, the one day flooring formula that is branded. We talked a lot about in Tulum, the idea of productizing a service. And the idea here is that you're creating a thing, you're taking a service, which changes every time you offer it, to a productized service, which does not change. There's a methodology, there's a set of steps you follow. So in, in Lee's case at One Day Flooring, he's got five steps he goes through with every customer, they're always the same. And when he has a branded product, he's able to sell the product, not the person. Mm -hmm. When you rock up as the founder of a company and you say, I'd like to clean your windows, they're evaluating you because you're not giving them anything else to evaluate you on. They're gonna say, oh, can I get some references? Hey, how many neighbors have you done? How, how long have you been doing this? Are you insured, like, et cetera, because they're evaluating you. Whereas if you say, we've got the, the one day window cleaning formula, we've done it 16,000 times, we've got these five reviews, we follow these unique steps, then they're evaluating the formula, not the person. Mm. And at that point, you can get out of doing the selling because they're actually evaluating your formula, not you personally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're building, you're putting the focus of, of value building and improvement into the organism that is the business, not the person that started it, basically. Um, 100%. There's again, so if we go back to where we started, Benji, that's the essence of building yeah. to sell, building a valuable company is, is it, can it thrive without you? Mm. And I know it sounds simplistic, but that's essentially the acid test as to whether you built something of value. If it can thrive without you, either doing the work or doing the selling, then it's a transferable business. Now you wrote this book uh, a number of a number of years ago. It's it's you know it's 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 a bestseller. It's kind of a cult classic in the business world. I mean, so many of our members read it. Uh, it's actually why why we we wanted to have you to to our event earlier this year. Um, and and so the book the book is kind of structured in this way where it's telling it's telling the story of Alex Stapleton and the Stapleton Agency. And, and as we kind of go through the story of of this entrepreneur and his business deciding he wants to sell and then taking the steps with his mentor, I think his name is Ted. 
to essentially like set the thing up well for that exit so that he gets the price tag that he wants, the people that he leaves behind are happy, and um, and he's not sort of attached to it on some sort of like uh, earn out situation for many years. Uh, there's fundamentals that get taught and they get highlighted and we, they're sort of bolded on, on the different pages in the chapters. When I when I read it, I was I was struck by certain things that really really um, connected with like a blue collar business, a contracting business, and then some some things that seem different. Do, can you maybe th- think or or expand on um, in in what ways a contracting business like a home builder, a landscaper, painter, spray foam, something like that, is different than an agency type business? Yeah. So in the book, the protagonist runs a service business that happens to be a marketing services business. But I think there are actually more similarities than differences. For example, both a marketing services business and a home services business have clients. Uh, they often have custom projects. Oftentimes the the owner is involved in doing the selling. There's oftentimes it's a transactional business model where there's no recurring revenue. It's in its essence, I mean, the biggest comparison or similarity is is that they are both service businesses. And by their nature, service businesses are delivered by people. And because people are human beings, they are hard to replicate and scale <laughs> because they're obviously not robots. And so we need to give them structure. And that's really where I see a lot of the parallels is whether you're selling a marketing services or, you know, chimney cleaning services or window cleaning services. They're all essentially services that need to be rendered. And, and, uh, and so for that reason, I think there are actually a lot more similarities than, than right. Our On paper, they, 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 they could seem very different, but when you look at it from a lens of like first principles and real sort of like fundamental parts, they're, they're actually quite alike. I, um, as I read through it, I mean, I think there's 18 or 20, there's quite a few like sort of lessons in there. I, I went, I combed through it again. It had been a few years since I read it. So I combed through it again and I just pulled out, I think five or six of the fundamentals that I thought really, um, they just struck me as things we needed to dig into for this audience in particular. So I'm going to, I'm going to take you through these, these five or six. I've got a line of questioning, uh, built on around, around each. It's obviously going to be super conversational. And by the way, there might be a few of these where you're like, hey, Benji, you're actually asking totally the wrong question here. I'd frame (laughs) it this way. And that's totally welcome as as well. The first one uh, is don't generalize, specialize. Why don't you just unpack the logic behind that rule first? And then I got a few follow-up questions. Yeah. I mean, look, when you generalize every additional service you offer, you're making your business more dependent on you personally. Because if you think about to make a business work without you, you've got to train others to do the work. And it's a lot easier to train others to offer one service like Lee's done at One uh, uh, One Day Flooring. Lee's really been disciplined about just doing flooring and therefore he can bring on a crew. doesn't take him five years of apprenticeship to train these young kids how to install concrete floors. Yet if he was tempted to sell other things, I mean, another, another one is Barry at 505 junk up in Vancouver. So Barry, uh, 
you know, has a crew that removes junk. So he's got trucks on the road, shows up at a homeowner and, and he removes their truck. And, and you could say, well, what other synergies are there? So what else could I do if I was Barry? I could, well, I've got guys on the road. I've got a truck. You know, I'm going to someone's home. There's a truck rule involved. Well, why don't I just cut their lawn at the same time? Because everybody needs lawn care services. But the moment you do that, yeah, you cross sell a second product, you make more revenue per visit, but you're now having to train and teach someone who's been trained at weighing junk to now, how do you deal with an electric lawnmower? How do you gas up a, a, a lawnmower? You have to teach them a second mm -hmm. service. And then if you add a third or fourth or fifth service, you, it starts to become untenable. You start to get a business that's deeply dependent on, on you. So this idea of specialization is really akin to, you've got to get this kind of level one business to a point where you can get others doing the work. And the fastest way to do that is to specialize so that it takes you less time to train them. You use the word discipline, which really jumped out to me. Can you just explain why it takes discipline for an entrepreneur to do that? Yeah, because every client is going to want you to do other shit. Like they're all going to say, right. oh man, you know, you, you, you're you, like, you built my deck. You made it. It was so amazing. Uh, do you guys ever consider doing right. fencing? Right. Right. And, and you're, you know, this is like, you're like, like lambs to the slaughter. I mean, you, you, you love the, the accolades from the client the customers happy. It, it, it makes you filled up warm and inside you like the revenue and mm -hmm. you've done it. Yeah. Revenue profit, you know, and you think, oh yeah, wait, I mean, we could do roofs. Why not? I, I know how to swing a hammer. It's, it's just, it's, it's tempting to do it because clients are asking you for it. Right. And, and that's the real challenge is, is that we've indoctrinated entrepreneurs to believe that, uh, you know, you've got to listen to your clients. You've got to be client-centric. You've got to be customer-centric. And while I, I agree to some extent that's important, but, you know, Steve Jobs is famous for the quote, nobody ever thought they wanted a thousand songs in their pocket, yet he created the iPod, the predecessor to the iPhone. He needed to have the vision to say, no, this is a product we can win. This is a product we can create, which will be better than anyone has ever imagined, but we, we have to be disciplined. And I think that discipline is, in some cases, flies in the face of what clients want you to do. Just because you're there with ladders to clean the windows doesn't mean you have to also do the ease troughs. If you're not trained to do that, you don't have the insurance to do that, you don't have the people to do that, it's tempting because you're on the roof already, but you've got to stay within what you've trained your people to deliver. Mm. Um, it's it's very interesting hearing you talk about that idea of discipline and and they've stuck they've really stuck to their lane like the um, in this little space of ours the businesses that I have seen uh, do really really well from a valuation standpoint in stage a very successful exit where a lot of people got rich they're very their scope of work is narrow it's yeah. not wide and broad it's very like we 100%. do this. And we do it better than you anyone else. You know why else. that is? Why? Because acquirers are just like we are as humans. Let me give you an example. So if you think about cable television and you think about what you pay per channel you subscribe to, if you still subscribe to cable like me, I think I'd pay about 100 bucks <laughs> for like 500 channels, something like that. I, I watch, by the way, Benji, maybe one or two, right? Yet on a per channel basis, I'm paying... Well, 100 bucks for 500 is like 20 cents a channel. Mm -hmm. So I don't place a lot of value on the stuff I don't need. Mm -hmm. 
Yet Disney rocks up and say, for 12 bucks a month, you can have one channel. On the surface, you might think, okay, well, that's, that's 60 times more than every other channel I'm paying for. Yet I happily do it. Why? Because they do one thing better than anybody else. Acquirers are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So they look at a business and they say, we want to own HVAC, right? So they go, you know, we're dominant in St. Louis and Nashville, and we want to go into Denver. And so they look up and they say, who is the number one HVAC company in Denver? If that HVAC company is pure HVAC, they're going to pay a huge multiple for that company relative to a business that's a little bit of HVAC, a little bit of window cleaning, and a little bit of lawn care. Because what are they going to do with the window cleaning and lawn care? They're going to jettison those businesses. They're going to shut them down. They're not worth any to them. They're in the business of doing a roll-up in HVAC. And so all the ancillary stuff that you do to drive revenue, get more customer you know, revenue per customer, more revenue, more profit, it actually is hurts actually you. undermining your attraction attractiveness to an acquire. It's not growing your attractiveness. It's undermining your attractiveness. So and again, it, it depends on what your goal is. Sorry, Benji, to cut you off, but it depends on what your goal is. If you want to create a cash flow business, have a great lifestyle, grab a great truck and have clients who love you, by all means, knock yourself out, do whatever you want, because you're in a great spot. You've got a great expertise, a great skill set, and you can have a great lifestyle business. It's going to cap out at two, three, four hundred grand a year, where you can't really pull much more on it because there are no more hours in the day. If you want to build a multi-million dollar business and have a seven, eight, nine-figure exit, you got to do one thing. Right. Yeah. It's um. It that that leads me to like I what I think is a really important question. We just kind of backed into it, which is if a business owner is in those early years, like in the first five or 10 years, they're still learning who they are as a business person. They're still figuring out the shape of the company that works for them, the jobs they love to do. There's sort of that nascent stage where things are not sort of like rigid and heavily structured. You're still figuring it out. Where and how should an entrepreneur be examining their own business entity for where that specialization might be possible. Yeah, again, we we talk about this thing, we talked about it to Loom, this idea of TVR, teachable, valuable, repeatable. And so you're looking at all the services you provide, ease troughs, roofing, window cleaning, whatever, foam installation, whatever you do, and you're rating them on these three metrics, how teachable they are to employees, how valuable they are in the eyes of customers and the opposite of value is commoditized and how repeatable they are, meaning how regular does a customer need that service? So installing a furnace is a one-off service. Servicing that, that, that furnace by coming to replace the, the air filters every six months is a repeatable service. Teachable, valuable, repeatable. And you're rating all of your, your services on that, those three metrics. Mm -hmm. I think what you'll find is that when you do that, the things that are most highly valuable, the things that are very, very valued in the eyes of a customer, the customers pick you specifically to deliver are also the least teachable. Mm -hmm. And the opposite is true. A lot of us have services that are really, really teachable, but they're highly commoditized. Right. And here's the biggest mistake I see people making is they, is they say, well, I've got to figure out what I'm really good at, right? And then try to make it teachable. 
right? I've got to find that one service that's really, really unique. Like I'm, I'm an expert in, in installing um, four-story garages in wineries in certain climates, right? Like, like that's the, the thing. So you've got to think about what it is that you're really unique at, or excuse me, let me, let me rephrase that, rephrase that. Most people start by focusing on what it is they're really unique at and trying to make it teachable. And what I would do is the exact opposite. I would focus on what you can teach others to deliver and then make it valuable in the eyes of a customer by wrapping it in a marketing layer that differentiates it mm. from other providers providing the same service. In other words, making it less commoditized. So again, if I go back to 505 junk, I mean, that you know, junk pickup is something that we've been doing since the dawn For of time, right? Like yep. the classic mm -hmm. pickup truck guy comes and, and, and takes away your junk. Um, but 505 Junk, and before it, Brian Scudamore at Wayne Hunter got junk. They took a service that they could teach young kids, mostly in university, how to deliver, and made it unique by branding it. If we look at one-day flooring, there's nothing unique about what Lee, Lee is doing at one-day flooring. He's installing concrete floors for crying out loud. It's not unique. But he's created a brand, right? He's mm -hmm. created a formula, the one-day flooring. Brian Scudamore is doing it again with one-day painting. It's a formula, right? It's painting houses. There couldn't be anything more commoditized. But he's differentiating it in the eyes of the market, making it more valuable in their eyes because he's developed a formula. In the case of one-day painting, it's like, we're going to transform your house in one day. Who's how many people have hired a painter thinking it's going to take a couple of days and two weeks later, you're still stepping over the drop sheets in your basement yeah. waiting for the guy to finish the job. A lot of our listeners That's have unfortunately been service. that. A lot of our uh, listeners have unfortunately been that painter or are that painter right now. They're kind <laughs> right. of choked about but it. it. But so, so one, day one day painting is like a really compelling value proposition for a homeowner. Nobody wants their home to be out of commission for two weeks. So again, I'm just saying, yeah. don't make the mistake of thinking about that unique service that you could never teach anybody to deliver Instead, think about the teachable services and, and then, make them more unique by branding them. So creating a productized formula. I'm a brand guy. Let's click in on that because I find this really fascinating. And I've been, and I've been saying this with some of my some of my buddies in BTA and, and talking to them about this. And I wonder if you um, think this is this sound advice or if you change it at all. I think that there is real value that you can create for yourself as an entrepreneur in this space, both over the short term, because it's going to boost your sales number, your, your, your conversions will be better. Everything's going to be easier, but also from the long-term valuation play. And that is this brand your specific process. So if you run a painting company called precision painters, there should be a section on your website devoted to the precision painting process. TM. And then there's some graphic design and some steps and some good copy and some good icons. Um, and by the way, that process is not different from the still scrape, sand, prime, two coats, inspect, you know, like it's still, but you've done, you've made it high gloss. You've made it beautiful. You've made it compelling. If you're a... Um, if you're a general contractor, um, you know, you would brand the, the pre-construction and construction and, and follow up pro quality control process that follows within your business. So you have the name, your company and your logo, but it's almost like a sub branding exercise of how you do what you do. 
And I just think that because that, we've done that at Breakthrough Academy or we are doing that at Breakthrough Academy. Um, and we've done that, by the way, because this like coaching, consulting, advising space has gotten really noisy in the last five years. And we now need something super unique that's only ours, that's probably trademarked. And I just wonder like what, what your thoughts are on that whole concept of, of kind of creating a little subtext under your brand where you, you really bring to life that unique way that you do something that is quite teachable, is quite repeatable, but you've made it your own. A hundred percent agree because it gives you a point of differentiation. It goes back to this idea of making what is making something teachable, valuable in the eyes of your customers. The fact that you own the five step process for window cleaning, for example, it makes you different. And the biggest mistake I think we make as service providers is an attempt to explain what we do is we use the industry generic language and we say, yeah, like I'm a roofer, I'm a contractor, I'm an HVAC guy, I'm a plumber, I'm an electrician. All of a sudden, what have you done? You have commoditized yourself and allowed your customer to compare you with every other electrician, plumber, HVAC guy that he or she has ever dealt with. And so all of a sudden you're like, well, we charge 200 an hour and you know, the other guy's 180 and you're like, well, why you know, truck rolls 75? I mean, you're all of a sudden commoditized. And so what I would say is if you do, as you're suggesting, Benji, which is to create your unique formula, the five step in the book, it's the five step logo design yes. process. It could be you know, the, the seven step approach. I think Lee at One Day Flooring has his five day process. That gives him a point of differentiation. He says, yeah, everybody can, there's lots of guys that install a floor for you, but we've got the five day or we've got the five step floor process. And each of the steps have been fine tuned over years and we've got 16 customers who are happy to give you a reference about going through the five steps, et cetera. So it gives, again, it gives you a point of differentiation. It also gives your employee structure. So they're not tempted yes. to start wandering off and start giving, you know, offering a, a totally custom solution to a customer. I mean, if you're an employee at one day flooring, like, you know, the five steps in the process and you follow the same thing every time. And if a customer ever asks you, well, can you do something else? It's kind of like, well, that doesn't, that's not really our process. And so it gives guardrails to your employees, to your team. It gives you differentiation, pricing authority. I mean, it's it's all upside. It's 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 about creating your unique way of doing what you do in the market. Uh, I'm thinking about our our custom home builders, our general contractors, our large like landscape construction companies, maybe some of our larger commercial contractors, where their business, just because of the very nature of what it does is not as, um, how do you say this? It's not as like specialization friendly. Like it's just difficult. If you're building custom homes, the, the most of those businesses have a man or woman at the helm of it who is like the construction savant who's also pretty businessy and they do unbelievable work and they can make tons of money. I mean, we have members that are doing north of $20 million a year worth of new homes. Um, should a business like that where like the projects are large in scale and very complex, should a bit like, can we do this for those types of companies or should those entrepreneurs just like look at their business more as a lifestyle thing? Like I get for flooring, you can kind of package that up and make it discreet and make it simple. Junk removal is another great example, but if you're building the most high end, you know, architectural builds on the water in Kelowna where I live, like is it possible to make a business like that really valuable one day? No. 
It really isn't. I mean, in my view, uh, you got a great lifestyle business. Uh, you know, you get maybe a two or three times EBITDA when you go to sell it. It's, uh, you know, pull it all the cash you can along the way. Uh, enjoy what you've created. You, you know, you can make a million, two, three, four, five million net clear for building custom, very high end homes if you're really good at what you do and you've got a great, but no one's going to want to buy that business because it's you. It's your expertise. You are the savant. You are the artist. You are the architect. You are the, the person who's running that company. Yeah. And again, those businesses transact, but they, they are, uh, they're usually transact when when there's a vendor take back, which is a which is a kind of finance mechanism where you're effectively loaning money to the new buyer to buy your business right. out. So I mean that's like the, the opposite of building a valuable business. You're effectively having to it's you're like selling your house but the giving the, yeah. the person the money to buy your house. It's kind of like right. it's it's sort of back backwards yeah. in my view. So I think that's very hard. I, I mean I've heard of of people doing two businesses in parallel. So they'll have the very high end custom home building uh, work that they do that's just highly customized. But then they'll have a, a, a separate business line where they just install garages. And there's a formula and there's a system and there's a process and there's a Brian Scudamore kind of formula that they follow to that. But those are two different businesses. Uh, I would keep them legally separate, mm. separate management, because, again, one is a great cash flow business. The other is a bill. You know, you're building a valuable business. There's lots of examples, by the way, Benji, and I'm sure you've seen lots of them yourself where you know, people, you know, what is the old expression? Pay Peter, uh, pay Rob Peter, Peter to pay Paul. Rob, Peter, hey, Paul, thank you. Gosh, my mind's not working today. Thank you. The, the idea being that you can have a great cash flow business um, spinning off tons of profit and you could put that money in your, in your jeans and spend it, or you could use it to finance the growth of a more sellable company. And so the mm -hmm. most famous example I can think of is a guy named Jason Freed, who I got to know a little bit. Jason started the company Basecamp. Basecamp is project management software. Yeah. It's a SaaS product. I know it. It's mm -hmm. a very, yeah, it's a very, very valuable company because it has uh, SaaS customers, software as a service customers. What's interesting about Jason is he started that business doing doing custom one-off web development jobs. So companies like Wrigley and Ford and General Motors hired him to create their websites. And those were highly profitable businesses, highly profitable projects that those customers, Ford, wanted Jason to personally show up for. But he was able to make 20, 30, 40 points per job in, in terms of profit. And he just took that money and funded the development of Basecamp, which is a one-to-many business. He never talks to individual customers. Mm -hmm. He's got tens of thousands of customers, hundreds of thousands of users. So you can take money from your cash cow, building custom homes, for example, and invest it in a more sellable, built-to-sell kind of business. But thinking that you know your 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 custom home building is company without doing some of the things we've talked about today, where you're the rainmaker, mm. you're the person that kind of handholds the clients through each job. Mm. It, it, in my view, it's not a sellable company mm -hmm. uh, for any any multiple that is it is it's going to be attractive. Well, that's great advice. And and by the way, there's nothing wrong with making uh, you know many hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, getting into the millions a year, and, full, and folding yeah. that into real estate because at that but, point you're rich as hell anyway. Who cares if it's not worth that much? I agree 100%. I agree 100% as long as we go into that decision with our eyes wide open. Yeah. I've seen examples where people pour all of their profit, in many examples, unfortunately, people pour all of their profit 
into their business, which is based on a flawed model. They never take a dime of extra money. They hardly take anything in the way of salary because they say, well, I'll get paid when I sell it. And so Uh, they build, for example, a $10 million custom home building company. And instead of clearing 500 grand a year and putting it in your pocket or buying mutual funds or extra property, they've just rolled it back into the business. Well, we're going to invest in marketing, more systems, more product, whatever. And they turn up 10 years later and think, okay, now I built this $10 million business and I yeah. want to sell it. And everybody looks around and says, well, there's nothing, there's yeah, nothing yeah. here. They did that under that's, the false. That's the tragedy, I think. Yeah, they're yeah. They're, they're operating under the, the, the false assumption that it's going to be worth a bunch one day and it isn't. And it's just uh, uh, you, you find out too late in those instances. You talk as well um, in the boat in the book about um, the importance of charging up front. So, yeah. okay. From a week to week cash flow standpoint, I can totally understand the logic in doing that. Why is this important for evaluation one day though? Yeah, because when an acquirer looks at your business and they go to buy your business, they're going to write two checks. And the first check is the one we think about the most, and that is the check to acquire your business outright, right? So that's the money you're going to put on your jeans when, they, when, they, when you hand over the keys to your company. But there's a second check that they write, and that's a check to fund your working capital, which is kind of fancy language for the amount of money you need in the bank when you hand over the keys to your company to a new owner. And if your business is just a cash spigot, it's generating tons of cash, there's lots of retained earnings, they're going to say, we don't need to fund working capital because these guys just mint money. But if the opposite is true in that you, you know, collect slowly or you do all the work and then you send an invoice and you wait around for 60 days to get paid – They're going to say, we're going to finance that entire float, that entire period. And the faster we grow, the more we're going to have to inject into working capital. And so the the dirty little secret is both of those checks are drawn from the same account. The working capital check that they have to write to your business when they acquire it and the one they write to you. And not surprisingly, if they have to write a big check for working capital, Mm. there's less money left over to pay you. The opposite is true. If your business is a cash spigot, generates money as it grows, they don't have to finance your working capital. Mm -hmm. There's more money left over to buy you out effectively. And so that's why businesses with a positive cash flow cycle, you get paid before you do the work, Mm. are, are going to get a better multiple. And again, people are saying that, but saying, well, this guy doesn't understand our business. We're in the service business. We do the work, then we send an invoice, then we get paid. Here's what I would tell you. I would say productize. And it's something we've talked about today. We talked about in Tulum, this idea of making your service into a thing. Uh, one, eight, one day flooring is a thing. The five day floor, the five step flooring process is a thing. And once you productize, I think you'll be able to get some or all of your cash up front because we're socialized to buy products Mm -hmm. up front. We're socialized to pay for services after they've been rendered. Like again, if you think about you go into Costco, you you buy a bottle of Tide off the counter, you show up at the checkout, you expect to pay for it before you draw the first spigot of the fluid out of the, you know, do your first load of laundry. By contrast, if you hire a window cleaning company and you say, come on next Tuesday and you, the company comes, they clean the windows, they leave you with an invoice, you may pay it 30, 60 days later. Mm. Product is, like, productizing 
has the ancillary benefit or the secondary benefit that we're more likely to pay for something yeah. up front once it's been productized. Right, right. Um, the idea of calculating market size is brought up in the book, and it's something that I think Ted says to Alex is you got to understand you know, how many businesses in that example could actually pay for logos. And so they do some math and they figure it out. Um, why is this important? How would you suggest small business owners in our space do that math? And then what do we do with the information? Yeah, so it's called investors, you know, fancy financiers refer to it as a TAM, total addressable market. And effectively, your TAM is a very important metric for potential acquirers. Why? For most of us as entrepreneurs, you know, I, I do talks to entrepreneurs now and again, and like the one in Tulum, I don't think I did this in Tulum, but I, but I often say to business owners, if entrepreneurship were a sport, what would be an appropriate analogy? Right, like is running your own company like alpine skiing or rugby or uh, you know snooker or hockey? Like Quarter, what would you playing say? Playing quarterback for an NFL analogy? team. Quarterback for an NFL team. Quarterback for an NFL team. The most common response I get is marathon, and the idea being that it's just a giant slog, <laughs> right? Like it's a day in, day out war of attrition. It's a long-term fight. Sometimes you feel like giving up and it takes way longer than you thought or anticipated or wanted. Very rewarding when it works, but it's, it's, it's the most common analogy in a sporting context I get to the world of entrepreneurship. And when I hear that, I think, yeah, I can totally identify with that. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, as they approach their exit, they're like willing themselves to, to mile 26, right? Like they're just yeah. limping their way to the finish line. When you think about the world of an acquirer, the key is to remember for them, mile 26.2 is their starting line. Mm-hmm. And that is so hard for an entrepreneur to think about, especially one who's been in the business for decades and they're just willing themselves to the finish line. It's like they want to be judged on everything they've done in the past. Right. right? Look at our EBITDA from the past. Look at the fact that we won all these customer awards in the past. This great you know, revenue growth that we had last year is amazing. Pay us for what we've built. Right. Yet acquirers are towing the starting line for their marathon. And if you've gotten your business to whatever X million in revenue, they've got to start to get their head around, how am I going to get this business to 5X where you got it to, or 10X or 25X more than where you got it to? And that's such a hard kind of idea for entrepreneurs to think about because they've been so myopically focused on 26.2 miles for such a long time. The acquirer so, doesn't want to see some guy with wobbly legs who's got like tears running down his face and his shoelaces are undone and he's like limping across. Right. He's like, get me the metal and get me the hell out of here. Like they don't yeah, want that's that. That's not what the buyer wants to see. Uh, right. Yeah. The buyer wants to see some sprightly young thing rocking up to mile 26.2 and, and, and happy and ready to go for another 26.2. Of course, we don't feel that way when we get to the end as entrepreneurs, but we've got to somehow paint the picture 
for an acquirer that the TAM for this business is massive, that there is a ton of upside that a highly refreshed, energized new founder could go after. Right. And again, if you say we do flooring in Dayton and we've floored every home, you know, construction build, every, you know, every building in the state or the city of Dayton, that's going to be less attractive to an acquirer than if you say, yeah, we've done, you know, 6% of the residences in Dayton. So we've got a huge market share that we can go capture in Dayton. And that's just the third largest city in Ohio. And that doesn't even pales in comparison with what we do do in the whole Ohio Valley and then let alone the Northeast and then across the country. And all of a sudden an acquirer is getting excited about what they could do Mm. with Lee's business Mm. um, because there's a huge upside across the country. So geography and density would matter a great deal then. Like you, that, yeah, you know, like if you've ever written a business plan for a bank, God help you, they always say, what's your market share? And the idea is that market share is good. It's some sort of proxy for your success. But acquirers view it as exactly the opposite. They think market share for a large part, I mean, market share is a double-edged sword. On one hand, market share gives you pricing authority. If you're the only game in town and you're the only one who offers a service, then sure, you've got more pricing authority. You've got better margins. However, you also have less TAM. You also have less upside. And so they, they kind of work against each other in a lot of cases. So you want, you want enough market share where you've got some credibility, you've got some pricing authority, people can look at you as an expert, but still have lots of TAM left to go after. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this concept of leaving a management team behind is obviously incredibly important to a purchaser as well. And I've got a few. I've got a few questions around that. Um, who, what kind of leadership team is an acquirer looking for? Are there? Can you maybe like paint us a picture of an archetypal five million dollar a year, ten million dollar a year business, and what kinds of roles that a buyer is going to want to have in place quite solidly, and then maybe. Um, and then, and then thoughts on how to, I don't like the term like lock them up for a while, but like keep them invested in the business after it transacts. Yeah. Sales and delivery are the two functional areas that you want to make sure you've got really good leaders on. So sales should be self-explanatory, like how you win new customers, how you serve existing customers. So that's really something you want to have a strong leader in other than you. And equally, the second functional area that's really going to be important is delivery. So if you're window cleaning, make sure you've got a crew chief that is really, really good at managing a crew of window cleaners. So those two functional areas are going to be the keys you want to lock up. The back office functions are going to be less important. So your finance person, if you have legal or HR or any sort of back office types of roles are likely going to be handled by the acquirer. So you know, don't like if you had to choose between hiring a chief revenue officer and a chief financial officer, hire the chief revenue officer, get, you know, a CFO on contract or a fractional CFO if you need one to come in and help you think through some of the finance stuff. Uh, but that role finance is likely to be, be absorbed by an acquirer. So they're mm-hmm. going to place less value on the fact that you've got a CFO than they would the fact that you've got a really good crew chief and a really good, uh, you know, sales 
system, so to speak. That is legal, the same HR is the same. Any of the kind of back office functions, those are going to get absorbed. Those are redundancies. They're probably going to eliminate those jobs uh, uh, in an acquisition. It's actually really interesting to hear you say that. I would not, now that you say it, it seems so apparent because the buyer is going to have those facilities, those, those capabilities yeah. in-house. And so they're not placing too much value on it, but a really strong sales and marketing leader, a really strong operations manager, someone in a like production leadership role, that is way harder for them to replace. So that's maybe where the focus should go. And then, and then quickly, what kind of, what kind of incentive plans, long-term incentive plans work for those people? So the entrepreneur is structuring uh, is structuring an incentive plan to keep this sales leader in place for three years post-transaction or five years post-transaction. Same thing for the delivery side of things. Uh, what kind of long-term incentive plans work for that? What kinds have you seen that maybe seem like they're going to work and then really don't? Yeah, the biggest mistake I think is is giving shares to people who aren't entrepreneurs. And so I think the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make, in particular early stage, maybe first-time entrepreneurs, is to say, I wanna, I wanna feel like we're a team. We're gonna do this together. We're gonna, we're gonna really kind of three musketeer it and we're all gonna be on the same page. And so I wanna give you equity. The challenge with that, of course, is that being a minority shareholder as the employee is really worthless. Unless you decide to sell your business, having a 10% stake in some company you didn't buy is relatively uh, useless. Why? Until you Can you unpack that? Why it's useless? Because you can't do anything with those shares. You don't have put options, which means you don't have the right to force the majority owner to buy you out. And if the majority owner just says, well, I, I don't want to sell, so I'm just going to keep trucking along for the next 100 years – you never can get out. There's no, there's no option. There's no liquidity for that minority share. Whereas if, and, and it can also, the majority shareholder can manipulate things, pay themselves a giant bonus. So there's no profit left at the end of the year. These are all at their discretion. So there's just being a minority shareholder in a company you don't control at a privately held company is very little value. Um, you can have options for your employees, yet stock options are, are going to very much sort of put the focus on an exit. And if you're not sure you want to sell or you may want to go through a family transition or you may want to sell to, you know, management, you, like you're not sure, putting all the emphasis on their variable compensation on stock options can be equally problematic because it's going to get your staff to be really focused on how, when are we going to sell? When are we going to sell? And that's not necessarily the formula for building a valuable business. You know, you can also just use a, a simple stay bonus if you want to help, you know, I just I just did an interview, uh, same guy, Mark Wright, the guy I was talking about that uh, partnered with Lord Sugar. Sugar was a 50% shareholder, but he was the minority, the silent partner in the deal. And he said, "You, the one stipulation I have in investing in your company, Mark, is you cannot share equity with anybody. And so Mark's like, that kind of handcuffs me. He was in a service business, wanted to share equity with some of his employees. And so he was trying to think about how do I incentivize these employees on helping me get through a transaction, sell my company. And what he did was he simply just put a financial incentive in place saying that if we close this deal and I successfully sell my company, I'm going to write you a check for X dollars. Mm. And I might structure it so there's two payments, one on the day the deal closes, and then a second, maybe 12 months after, if you're still with the company. So it's it's similar to a stock option, but it's really just a stay bonus. And it's 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 a much simpler structure. Not anchored and, on performance. It's literally just a date in the calendar where you get a lump sum. Yeah, 
that that is one way to do it. Yeah. You can do it more on an earn out and some acquirers will will give you as the founder and maybe some of the key stakeholders, staff members, a, a an earn out component, which means that there's a second payment that is potentially available to you if you hit certain thresholds or goals as a division of, a, of an acquiring company. That's another structure that that's used. Um, the long-term incentive plan that I wrote about in Built to Sell is just where you can basically give them a, a, a bonus, but give them a portion of the payout over time. So, and if they ever choose to leave your company, they- They forfeit that. They forfeit what you didn't pay them. Yeah. So you say, hey, Benji, great job this year. You earned a bonus of a hundred grand. Um, but we're going to pay you that in $20,000 installments over five years. So Benji gets 20 grand in year one. Amazing. But he's always having to walk away from five years worth or four years worth of potential bonus if he chooses to leave the company. So that's another structure. I mean, again, I'm not an accountant yep. nor a lawyer. So please talk to a professional if you're going to structure these. They're in some states in the United States and in Canada, it's different. It can be treated as income when you earn the bonus, even though you don't get paid. So you want to make sure you're talking to an accountant about structuring any of these long-term incentive plans, variable compensation models, yep. stock options, et cetera. Uh, make sure you, you, you do seek some, some professional a, tax advice. A good, a good caveat. This has been so amazing. I know you got to go here. I have one final question to close to close on, um, which is which is about trends and your sort of take on the future. And I'll set it up this mm -hmm. way. Somewhere around the beginning of 2020, it feels like the planet Earth got put on like fast forward or like 1.75 <laughs> speed sometime around Kobe's helicopter crash. We've gone through the pandemic that got weird. Uh, we, you know, we got through that. Now everyone's all up in arms about AI. We've got a debt ceiling negotiation going on right now, very quietly, which could have huge ramifications for the next decade. Um, you have, I just mentioned AI, but that's, that's sort of changing the, what we place value on in certain spaces, certainly in the job market, more specifically to this space that we're talking about today, you have a lot of private equity starting to sniff around and actually enter. Um, and then there's this massive cohort of baby boomers that are going to be retiring. I was looking at a Yahoo article the other day, 76% of the small businesses are set to transact in the next decade, something like $2 trillion in assets. So like that's a tidal wave sitting there. What is your, what is John's take on the 10 year forecast for business sellers? How can entrepreneurs maximize their cash out in this specific decade that we're living in right now? First, a general principle, and that is that I think it's a bit of a fool's errand to try to time the sale of your business based on macroeconomic conditions. What I mean by that is that when you sell your company, you're going to have to go do something with the money. You can't put it in a mattress or under a mattress. You've got to go buy something. So you're going to buy something into the exact same economic right. conditions you sold out of. So whether you buy a boat, Bitcoin, uh, bond ladder, stocks, bonds, commercial real estate, residential real estate, vacation home, whatever it is that you buy, they are all uh, basically exposed to the same economic conditions. And so right now we happen to be at a time where valuations are somewhat depressed based on, generally based on interest rates. So interest rates go up, valuations go down. That's like night and day. It's like night follows day. It's day follows night. It's the same. It's they're, they're linear. They, they always move in the same direction. So as interest rates have gone up to temper inflation, valuations have started to trickle down. And so 
as you sell into that market, you will be able to buy some other asset at a lower price than you could have, say, 12 months ago. Mm -hmm. Equally, you'll get less for your business than you probably would have 12 months ago. Right. So I think it's just a it's a it's probably not a really good use of time to try to to thread the needle too finely mm -hmm. when it comes to selling your company based on what's going on in a macroeconomic environment. I'm a big believer in, ex in instead thinking about this kind of concept of the freedom point. And the freedom point is when the sale of your business, along with what other assets you've created outside of your company, would create enough liquid wealth to live comfortably for the rest of your life. I think at, at that point, it's at least you owe it to yourself to ask yourself the question, is now the right time to sell? So... I think when you look at the motivations many entrepreneurs have, it is it, it, they got into business because they wanted freedom. They don't. They didn't want a boss telling them what to do. They didn't want a boss holding them back or or telling them they couldn't do something. And so they said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to start my own company. And so I think we all, many of us entrepreneurs, have this sort of freedom fighter aspiration is that independence is our greatest sort of aspiration. And so when the sale of your business would create enough liquid wealth to give you FU money, to give you enough money that you would never have to work, you could choose to work, but you would never have to work. I think it's at that moment in time where you at least owe it to yourself to say, okay, is now the time? Is now when I want to kind of get that ladder, that, 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 that rung on Maslow's hierarchy of knees so that I've got my foot on the ladder. I can never go below this. That's, I think, a, a really worthwhile conversation. You may come to the conclusion at that moment that there are other reasons you want to build your business. You want to create a legacy. You want to create a business your kids could own. You want to employ more people in the local community. All those things are valid. But I think it's worth asking the question, once you go past the freedom point, why am I doing it? And just being clear on that because it can't be for freedom because truly the best way to be truly free is to, is to transform a closely held business that is deeply dependent on you into a diversified pool of assets that you can kind of not worry about and sleep well at night knowing they're going to grow without your involvement. I mean, that's the, the true sense of freedom that you can get. So I think it, once you reach the freedom point, it's worth looking up and, and asking yourself, is now the time? Focus on the freedom point and maybe tune out the noise, the external noise, the headlines, all that stuff. That's maybe a better philosophy. That's well said, yeah. Cool, man. Let's leave it at that. I know you got a jet. Um, really appreciate you being here. Where can people, we'll link all the books. We'll link that value builder checklist below. Uh, where can people follow you online real quick? Yeah, builttosell.com. We've developed a a checklist that you can go through and think about how you're applying the built to sell methodology to your own business. It's free. You just go to built to sell.com. You can download it. Cool. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Contractor Evolution. Uh, if you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. 